Have you ever heard of the Delphonics? You talk like somebody who's about to get murdered by a videotape in the first scene of The Ring. Uh, that's fucked up, bro. You're a, are you a Katie or a Becca? Oh, nah. I'm a Becca. I'm, I'm a Becca. I think I'm a Becca, too. I'm not fucking watching a movie that I've never seen. Like, I've never watched, uh, what do you call it? Oh, well, if that's how we're gonna judge it, then maybe I'm a Katie, because I would totally watch that you, video. Michael, too. you would. Yeah, yeah I so would. You, but you I would. would also go insane and, like, go to the mental hospital and have psychic powers later on and be able to read someone's palms. I wish that scene annoys the shit out of me, but for other weird reasons. Well, maybe we should talk about it. I think I know what you watched last Sunday. Wait, are you... You asshole, you started recording this, didn't you? You bet I started recording this! I fucking hate you. That's our thing! I know! <laughs> God, you fucking prick. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm Michael Lewis Cusimano. And I'm Allegra Jade Fox. <laughs> Clinking wine glasses on ice cream bowls. Hey, you know how it do, baby. Because <laughs> before you die, you see... The ring. The ring. Mm-hmm. I think we're ready to get into the 2002, I'm not going to call it a masterpiece like I did with last week's entry, Scream. It's just a movie. It's a movie. It's you an know. important movie for sure. It had, it like, it made a big splash when it came out. It definitely did in my life. Yeah, no, I remember this was one of the first movies. Actually, no, I feel like this was the first movie that I actually, like, my mom dropped me off to go see. It was PG-13, so I didn't need mom and dad to go, you know, buy me tickets because also... My parents were kind of the cool parents that were like, what, what the fuck, whatever, it's a rated R movie. So they never really cared, but like, go see a 7, 7.30 showing at Northwood 16. <laughs> That's where I saw this movie. Yeah, dude, because we didn't, because what, we didn't start going to the embassy until I was able to drive. That's right, yeah. No, I, I saw this movie for sure at Northwood's, it was right behind the ice rink, and I, this was not the first PG-13 horror movie I saw, it was the second. Because another movie came out earlier this year called Signs, the second film earlier by that M. Year. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, same year, I'm pretty sure. And I remember going and seeing Signs with my friend Zach, and we had the time of our lives seeing this, like, kind of scary, kind of spooky, but also comedic uh, flick, which we should probably do an episode on Signs, or just, like, group, like, talk about M. Night Shyamalan as an episode. I think we should just talk about all of it, because I'm not going to sit here and watch all of his movies. And Hell I mean, no, they blow. They, okay, no, no, they... <laughs> We talked about this earlier. It's a graph going down very rapidly. There is definitely a, a, a trend, and it is not right. a positive one. And what's unfortunate is I really thought, what was the movie uh, with James McAvoy with all that? Split? Split. I almost felt like we were going in the right step, where I was like, here's something weird and creepy and... You know, unexplained, I mean, unexpected twist at the end. Where it's like, I'm sorry, that was the first one where you were like, oh, an unexpected twist at the end. That's all he's good for is an unexpected twist at the yeah, end. Yeah, but no, but this was one that I felt satisfied where I was like, oh, shit, you're bringing back Unbreakable. That's a pleasant surprise. Like, that was... Creating a cinematic universe or attempting to. He was attempting to. But I won't act like at the end of that I went, oh, shit, you're bringing back that movie, which... To me, and I know we're getting so off track, but uh, we're already way off the rails. <laughs> we are, but you, we, we, you know, we, we talked about the episode. I thought Unbreakable was like a really cool concept. Uh, yeah, I kind of like Unbreakable too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. His movies started to do that, and then once Lady and Water came out, it all went to hell. Let's get back to the ring. I was trying but, to tell you some kind of story. No, you were telling uh, me about I went and saw Signs, and then the next movie I went and saw with the same friend because it was another PG-13 movie that I was allowed to go see mm -hmm. was The Ring. 
And my God, it scared the shit out of me. Let's 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 tell our ages of when we first saw this movie. I was twelve. Okay, I was thirteen. Yeah. So this came out in '02, and if you were in eighth grade, I was in seventh. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this movie and being so freaked out uh, about halfway through it, looking at my buddy and being like, I. I literally have to leave. We have to leave the theater. I can't, I can't do this. It's too scary. And he looked back at me and smiled. He was like, <laughs> are you serious? And I felt super embarrassed. And I stayed through the rest of the movie and really enjoyed it. But for like two nights after that, I had to sleep in my parents' bedroom, like on the little fold-out cot that we had because I was too afraid to sleep in my own room. So this movie does get a very special place in my heart for being something that really, really unnerved me. And I give it a lot of credit because on a first viewing, not only does it have a lot of big surprises, it capitalizes on every jump scare it can possibly throw at you. It's got disturbing imagery. It's got, it really like goes the whole nine yards as far as the horror tropes and cliches go. Uh, it, it just got me. It got under my skin. I remember, so I was, I mean, it's, it, it definitely unnerved me, but I definitely like slept in my room that day, but I definitely... <laughs> well, look at you. Aren't you just so courageous? I can't, I can't help that I'm a bit of a badass bitch, <laughs> but I'm very much a badass bitch. Point is, I do remember though, like my closet looking creepier than normal. And so I definitely like closed that. I left like, you know, the, the, the door to my bedroom open, which I never do. I was, you know, becoming, a, I was a teenager and stuff like that, but... I remember, it's so funny because it did freak me out the first time I watched it, but I feel like my, more of my memories is that when, that's where I felt like the first time ever being a teenager. Sure. I don't know, this sense of freedom, because it was the first time that I'd done a thing without my parents, you know? I mean, because then this is when my mom starts letting me, like, go to the mall by myself with my friends. And so, I don't know, it is like, I was freaked out, but to me, that was like the beginning of my independence. So, again, first viewing, it totally got me. But I feel like more so, like, my thing was just, like, this is when I became, like, a teenager. It was a coming-of-age film for yes, me, Yes, as weird and fucked up as that is, it's just my memories of it was, like, being able to, like... It was, like, being a shithead in the theater and being, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, yes, but... I feel you, I, feel I could you. do it because my mom wasn't fucking there. Also, I bought the popcorn because... Sorry, Miss Fox. My mom would be sneaking in some McDonald's. <laughs> And you paid for the popcorn. And I paid for it. All right. I think we've established a really good, like, personal portrait of who we were at the moment that this movie came out. Yes. Will you uh, zoom out and give us a, a quick picture? 2002 in cinema, in the world, in the United States. So 2002, guys, I have to, I have to, we have to giant elephant in the room. This is the year after 9-11. The thing about 9-11 is it's almost kind what of... What is the thing about 9-11? The thing we about 9-11, that is... Huh. That's really kind of parallel of what's happening right now. It killed the film industry. It killed it. There were a couple of movies that had come out that, not come out, that were about to come out that they had to pull because certain scenes had the World Trade Center or certain things had a very, you know, it had a terroristic plot that like people were like, this isn't going to work. Like we were very hypersensitive, super patriotic, sure, but definitely paranoid. Like I remember being in San Antonio and everybody freaking out because they thought they would attack us next. So like nobody was going anywhere. So it just killed the industry, which this is the time of scary movies. This is the time of Christmas movies and nothing really happened in 2001. Like I can't think mm. of a movie after 9-11 that came out that was poignant because it wasn't. It was just like, I don't know if movies held back and waited until 2002 but that being said i feel like 2002 
had quite a few really good movies that came out that following year. Give me a few. Um, the ones I'm going to throw at you are horror movies. Are they critically acclaimed? Absolutely not. Hit me anyway. I've got Queen of the Damned, which oh. was a movie. Yeah. Which, remember guys, Aaliyah died midway through the production. So this was like supposed to be her big debut. So this movie had just come out. It was really her big finale. Uh, sadly. R.I.P. girl. Blade 2. You know, highly you anticipated scene. I love fucking Blade. Fear.com, which I would love to do an episode about because I feel like Fear.com probably hit some things that, like, I would just love to watch it now. I'd be fascinated to watch that. I've never seen it. Neither and have I. It would be cool to watch and see that moment in time for technology. Yes. Which, The Ring, also, we're going to see a moment in time for technology when it comes to phones and VHS tapes and all sorts of shit like that. Yeah. And then also, we had said earlier, Signs came out. Like, this yep. is, if I'm not mistaken, is this the movie right after, uh, um, The Sixth Sense? That's right. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to talk about that later because I think this movie kind of, like, rips off a little bit of Sixth right. Sense and then atmosphere. also I would love to throw out 28 Days Later which we are doing that's 2002 episode. it's 2002 that's what I'm saying there are there are movies that that's came a out. really really good one I and, mean I mean yeah 28 Days Later is 28 Days Later and then great. I also want to throw out action movies you have Equilibrium that came out oh, you yeah. had Minority Report that came out oh. Resident Evil Born Identity Men in Black the first 2 first Born okay. yeah so that's what I'm saying you have a bunch of really really this is a good year for genre buffs people who like sci-fi action horror there's a lot of really interesting stuff kind of going on yeah so that's why I'm almost like it, you know I would love to one day like dissect which movies were supposed to come out fall of 2011 got pushed back point is there's a lot of movies that are coming out in 2002 that The Ring could have easily have just been swept under the rug, but it didn't. I think the people who made The Ring really saw an opportunity at, in the climate, you know, that people that a lot of genre flicks were coming out and um, the people who I'm about to detail for you when we talk about our creators became some really big sh some big shots in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, so the director of The Ring, his name is Gore Verbinski, and one year after The Ring came out, he would direct the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Mm. He would go on to direct Rango and The Lone Ranger. He collaborated with Johnny Depp a lot. But, I mean, we're talking about, like, a studio, um, like, big blockbuster film type director. And I don't know if any of that would have happened if The Ring hadn't been his entry into the... Like the big leagues, That's because the fair. ring was a massive, massive it, it blockbuster was, hit. Yeah, this was a huge, uh, very successful horror movie. The writer Aaron Kruger, when we saw his name in the credits when we watched it last Sunday, I like practically screamed because our no pun intended uh, last week's episode was Scream and Scream one and two and four are all written by Kevin Williamson, who's a genius. And Scream three, the only one that he didn't pen the screenplay for, was written by. Aaron Kruger. Mm -hmm. So here's somebody who, after writing or adapting, I should say, the screenplay for The Ring, would go on to write three of the five Transformers movies. He wrote Scream 3 and collaborated with Williamson on Scream 4. He wrote Reindeer Games, weirdly, and just like a ton of other um, like mainstream, mainline Hollywood 
Blockbusters. Big, yeah. A-plus blockbusters. Big movies. So the writing and directing team behind the ring, these are people who are about to make a huge splash and then go on to millions. You could almost... Oh, no. I would say that these guys literally have turned Hollywood into what it is now because... At the time, it's a make, big statement. Well, no, think about. Well, I mean, I would say that they're one of the few that did it. Like part of the a, wave of twenty first century. Paved, they paved the way because remember when we were kids in the nineties, you had movies that only had what fifteen, twenty, thirty million dollar budget, and if a movie made fifty million dollars in the box office, that was great. But then all of a sudden, in the year two thousand, you start seeing you know, 100 million, 200 million. And think about it, Pirates of the Caribbean was a goddamn force. I'm gonna chalk that up to like Jerry Bruckheimer and the producers more so than uh, Gore Verbinski, who was hired, you know, to be the director to helm that. But that's what I'm saying, but still to be, a, but they are the directors that you said they made millions. They're in the club. They're they, definitely they in the club. They turned it into billions. It's yeah, like, say, sure. what, say what you will about Transformers. I have plenty to say. That's a billion dollar franchise. So I need to go back and just talk about the inspirations for this movie because it is a movie based on an earlier movie, as most people know, called Ringu, the Japanese version. But that, in turn, is based on a novel, a Japanese novel, also called Ringu or Ring. So the director of the Japanese film is uh, Hideo Nakata, and he co-wrote the screenplay with screenwriter Hiroshi Takahashi. And both of them as filmmakers, as writers and filmmakers, they're known for just Japanese horror. And Ringu, which came out in 1998, was a big revival in Japanese horror. It, is, it uh, reinvigorated horror in the country of Japan and in Asia in general because it was this huge smash hit. They made it for $1.2 million American. I don't know if that's in 98 dollars or today's dollars, but either way, that's a low budget movie. And when you watch it, you can tell it's kind of a low-budget movie, but it's really, really well done. I mean, I, I did watch this before we watched The Ring. I watched Ringu. And, man, it's, it got me. In the same way that the... Not in quite the same way, because I was 12 years old when I saw The Ring. But right. in the same way that, like, it got me, Ringu is scary. It legitimately... It goes there. And it's much more restrained than the American remake. Um, but in many ways... The American version is quite faithful to the story. In some ways, it's like totally, totally different. Uh, like I said, it's based on the novel by Koji Suzuki, who wrote a trilogy of novels called Ring, Spiral, and Loop. And he also wrote the novel Dark Water, which would be turned into a, a Japanese film and then remade into an American film when J-horror became this huge thing. Uh, that inspired American cinema with things like The Grudge. Mm -hmm. um, so we see this kind of little in-group of people who are in this niche uh, subgenre right. that because of The Ring in Japan, and then a few years later, The Ring in the United States just blew up Asian, new Asian horror cinema. Can I almost say, that was a weird thing I just did, Could I almost say um, that yet again we find ourselves with the genre of horror in a weird stagnant yeah. in 2002. Yeah, we talked last week about how Scream in 96 produced this enormous boom in teen slashers that was super short-lived. Right. I mean, by 1999, I would say, we had already seen our Urban Legends, I Know What You Did Last Summer, mm -hmm. and it was like... Idle hands. Yeah, which is almost like making fun of the whole thing right. with, with a tongue-in-cheek Then you have Scary well. Movie. So it's like, yeah, you have this, this, this resurgence, and the thing is, is that 
at this point, I mean, let's call it what it, what it is. We're two years after the you know year 2000. Everything in the year 1999 and 2000 had a goddamn 2000. Dracula 2000. Jason 2000. <laughs> like, it was just everything had 2000 on it. And it was like, what, what does this have to do with the plot? Nothing. But you could just tell, yet again, we find ourselves... I feel like horror movies are... It's just this constant phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. It's cyclical. It, where a new thing is going to come and breathe fresh life into our genre. And The Ring did it. By saying, hey, there's a whole other hemisphere over there. That's doing stuff. Like Japanese horror, Japanese manga. Like I know a mm -hmm. lot of Japanese art, um, uh, horror artists that I read. It's so much. The thing that they nail, which I, we, you know, I feel like this will dive right into, you know, because we need to get diving into it. They nail dread. Like when I read these mangas, I just, the pit of my stomach you know, I feel like I have to take a shower afterwards because it just hits that existentialistic dread. Like one author I read, I read is like this killer planet is slowly inching towards the earth, eating all the planets in front of it. And it's just how society just completely deteriorates. But it's like that, that thing in your mind where it's like, there's a time frame. There's a time frame. No matter what you do leading into the ring, there's a time frame. At some point, this is going to happen, but what's going to happen with it? Let's talk which about that starts time frame. Which, having said that, let's open up with this story. It starts off with two girls flipping the channels, throwing out some stuff that they heard about what the TV waves are doing, you know, all this other stuff. I love that, that they're kind of trading these little urban legend, um, like, hearsay rumor things like oh our cell phones are killing us the electro waves are in and think about it 2002 at least at this point probably at least somebody in a upper middle class middle class household has a cell phone so now it's like the idea of having a cell phone isn't so foreign you know at this point i mean i think mom and dad had a cell phone mm -hmm. you know i think i got a cell phone the end of 2002. I think I might have gotten one the next year. You know, it got me in trouble. I didn't get in trouble, but my mom gave me a cell phone because I called her Collect, I think, after seeing The Ring. Ah! Oh. Listen! Okay, younger... I've called Collect from that same payphone at that theater before. Me to say, too. Come pick me up. Come pick me up. And it was like, you've got a Collect call from, Mom's like, come pick me up, okay, goodbye. Like, <laughs> this is... This is what you fucking did because you didn't have a cell phone. You know, the movie starts at 7.30. You would tell your mom, nine... You know who didn't have cell phones, Allegra? These girls. Katie and Becca. They sure didn't. <laughs> so yeah, they're trading off these urban legends and then immediately Becca swoops right in and like, here's the honey. Here's, I heard about this tape that kills you in seven days. Yes, yes. And Katie then responds with, oh my God, I've seen it. It was exactly a week ago. I'm really scared and I think I'm gonna... And does a little over dramatic kind of fake death. Which is what you would do. A little fake out. We start with this, we go right into a spooky story to a, our first fake out. I want to say that the story of the tape is brought in within five minutes of the movie. I would say within one minute. Like, yeah. it's, it's instant. It's instant. There's no... Two like, minutes, maybe. They just jump right into it. Which is great. I love it. We've invented... I give huge props to Suzuki, the author who came up with this little urban legend of a videotape that you watch... And then seven days later, it kills you. I will note in the novel, which I haven't read, there is no use of phones. It's not a phone call. It just is the video. There's the woman at the end who tells you that you have a week to live. The phone trope 
was added for the film version in Japan, mm -hmm. and I wonder if it was in any way influenced by Scream, because it's only two years after Scream, and... But see, but almost at the same time, when was the book written? 91. 91. Okay, I was going to say, because to me, and I should have brought it up last week, I feel like the phone call trope didn't start with Scream, it started with When a Stranger Calls. Have you checked the children? How, what year is that? In like the 70s. Yeah, that's old as fuck. Which is like, because I remember that, that movie was the reason why I never wanted to babysit, but like, <laughs> to me, the phone trope, like, I mean, me as a, you know, millennial, I found about found out about it in Scream, but I feel like somebody like my brother was like, no, when a stranger calls. I mean, anyway, it's just, just food for thought, but I think that's really interesting that they didn't bring up phones. And, you know, so you have this fake out. The phone rings. Mm -hmm. They both like their heart drops. Jump out of their skin. <laughs> you know, and then being an audience member, you're like, oh shit. You know, yeah. Because the thing is, we're that, in it from the beginning. You're in it, and but at the same time, you know, I was 13. You know how shitty kids are. Somebody tells a story. It's like you know the Bloody Mary thing, and then somebody's like, I did it, or you know, this happened to me. This happened, and then they like take the scary story, and then they do their own thing, and you know, they freak everybody out. Like the person that, and I never messed with them. The Ouija board that is the one that will make it move to say something super scary. So I love that because that's what we do. We scare each other. Well, these girls walk down the stairs in the little parochial school uniforms. Which, as a private school brat, they are not that short. Uh, it, it's a little slutty. I mean, watching this today, you're kind of like, wow, this is a like who who. This is Look. Who made that? Who made that dress code? These girls look a certain way when so they're the going phone, down to answer that phone. So yeah, the phone rings. And it's her mom. It's her mom. So that's the second fake, fake out. <laughs> and then you know she answers. You know does her thing. Blah blah blah. And then what happens next? The Becca disappears. We don't know where she goes. Which I always thought was weird. In the Japanese one, which is the uh, this scene is really faithfully recreated from the Japanese version, I will say. Yeah, Except no, for did... the last like 30 seconds, which are right. added in the American version. It's really, really close. Um, and in the Japanese one, she has a line that's like, uh, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Don't go back upstairs without me. So she at least gives a little bit of an excuse for why she goes away. Which, okay, yeah, because that was one thing that I didn't get even then was like, where the hell is Becca? So yeah, she TV, just disappears. The TV turns on and it's static. And you know, again, teenagers, Becca stopped being a bitch. You know, where's the remote? The remote's right there on the couch. She turns it off. She walks back. It goes off again, you know, and then she, you know, heads upstairs mm -hmm. and there's water everywhere. There's the water. water theme is really powerful. I it think. is. And that's just like an addition for the American version. That's right. Not... Which like you, 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 you've seen what this inside of this house, this room looks like, which is what always freaked me out. Like they've established what this room looks like. There's no way in like, where the fuck did this water come from? She opens the door. The see... video with, which you only know if you, on a second viewing, you see the last frame of the videotape where it's the well on the TV in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And then we get kind of a, uh, quick zoom or like push into her face and blackout. Yeah, she she gets dead. Yep, that's how she gets it. Yep, yep, yep. Now it's time to meet our real uh, protagonists. We first of all we actually meet Aiden before we meet Rachel. Aiden, the young child, the son of Naomi Watts's character Rachel Keller, who's going to be our heroine. Uh, he's at, it's after class. He's in the classroom. He's drawing some creepy drawings because it's a horror movie in the year 2002 and, and young kids have a creepy draw kid. some creepy ass drawings. She comes in, she's, you know, she's on the cell phone. She, she curses right away curses in front of the teacher. And we establish almost immediately that she's a horrible mother. Yes. Which at the time, again, cause I like to do compare and contrast. 
I thought, oh man, she's letting her giving her kid freedom. But now as a thirty-one-year-old, y'all. No, like, she's like, a no. Oh, she's very absent mother. You know, he's you know, and it's like, oh, but he's so mature for his age. No, 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 no. But and in the scene with the teacher, you know, so the teacher. Oh, actually, we do have a black person. The teacher's black. Yes. So she says, "I'm really worried about Aiden, and we need to talk right. about him." Right, and she's very dismissive. Yeah, she is. She's, she's like, like, "Oh, he's fine. He'll talk to me K- if he needs Katie to talk just, to me." His cousin just died. They were really close. But then this. But that's not a big deal. We don't really. But this uh, goes on and on. But to me, the scene, the part that what the teacher says, you know, because she's very dismissive. She's about to leave, and she goes, "You said Katie died three days ago." She's like, "Yeah." And she goes, "These pictures were drawn last week." The pictures, by the way, are like pictures of Katie's corpse. Yes. It's like a buried, like dead buried, and buried corpse. X marks on the face. Like she's clearly dead. They're very disturbing, and he did them a week prior. So is he uh, prescient? Does he have some kind of second sight? Which we discussed or, while we were watching this, and I said no. It definitely tries to plant that seed a little bit, and it's gonna that seed is going to grow as the movie goes on, because he does kind of hear voices. But we also find out that Katie, this teenage, the, the first victim, I guess, of... In the movie, yeah. Um, she tells Aiden, who's like, what, nine years old? that she doesn't have much time left and she's going to die and she's terrified. It's like, Which to me... What is your relationship? You're 17 or whatever years old and you like are best no, friends with this nine-year-old? 15. I don't buy that those girls were 15. I'm sorry. Well, because remember, the mom's washing the dishes and she says, I've checked, no 15-year-old daughter, oh. no 15-year-old girl. So Amber Tamlin is playing a 15-year-old well, at age like... I don't know, uh, 23. <laughs> and how old was Naomi Campbell and all of them when they did Scream? Hush your filthy I'm, whore mouth. As I say constantly again, the way a teenager looks is not what a lot of these people look like in these horror movies. It is very clear that they are in their mid-twenties. Regardless of the age of the actor. But it it's matter. still weird that the high school student and this young child are, have right. a relationship but where she's like, I think me, I'm going to get killed. What kills me about this movie, too, is that if she knew... I think it's very fucked up that Becca was still was at her house. Like, if you know that's the day you're gonna die, you're gonna go like hang it, hang out, and kick it with your friend, and you're gonna possibly traumatize her. You wouldn't want some company. But like, she didn't tell her. I'd be like, "Yo, Michael, I watched this tape. This is my last day." She does eventually, like one minute before her death. I still think it's rude. But anyways, <laughs> the wheels start turning. Adrian, no, excuse me, not Adrian. Aiden. A- Aiden. Katie knew she was gonna die. We find out that this the lead is a reporter. Mm-hmm. Things start to go in motion. Rachel Keller, who's yes. a journalist for Which the I want to say paper. pretty much jumps into the next day where they are going to the funeral. Yeah, so we're over at the home where the first scene took place. And it's, it's, her, it's, it's like the wake, I guess. Right, because it's her sister. It's her, yeah, they're sisters is how they're doing their thing, is the relationship. Well, the, so Rachel Keller, Rachel, our, our lead, is the aunt of the victim yeah but when she's talking to the, the other blonde lady that's her sister who is uh katie's mom we should right. say and um this is where we meet adam brody <laughs> yeah pr- prior to the orange county so yeah they you hear the orange county <laughs> uh, the oc <laughs> yes the OC. i didn't fucking watch it <laughs> That's the thing. When you're in California, you don't call it the OC. Like, no one would ever call it that. Excuse me, Mr. You call it Orange County. (laughs) I love that you just went the other way, though. That the show called the OC, you called the Orange County. That's great. I was half right. Anyways, anyways. 
So there's a couple of things that happen in the kitchen when the two sisters are talking, you know, dealing with the grief. And, you know, the mom, uh, you know, her sister says, I've gone to all these doctors. I've gone to all these specialists. They've never heard of a 15-year-old girl's heart just stopping. Yeah. You also get a quick glimpse of what, you know, she's like, I found her. Mm. You find out, first of all, somehow she made it to the closet. Let's talk about the motherfucking closet. This is this is when I knew like I'm not gonna make it through this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Fuck you. This was scary <laughs> as shit. When that cutaway, there is the one of the best jump scares oh, in all of horror cinema. Solid jump scare. When she's saying, "Well, you didn't see her body, or you didn't find her body," some line mm. kind of like that, and a a smash cut, like very out of the blue, no warning whatsoever, to. Her just laying up, mouth open, and the head. It's what gets me is the head falls. And you're just like, fuck. Yeah. Now, I will say, in the uh, in Ringu, this, jump, this same smash cut jump scare mm -hmm. happens exactly. It's, a, it's positioned a little bit differently in the chronology of the film. It's a little bit later, but it's set up almost exactly the same way, where uh, the uh, mother of the victim is up in the bedroom and says, well, this is where I found her body. And there's a big sound cue, like a ee, and it cuts to the face of the corpse. And it, when I watched it the other day, I'm 30 years old now, and I mean, it, it got me. It was really scary. It's really effective. So they took it. Almost exactly. Yeah. The one thing that the liberty that they really took when they adapted this for American audiences is they there's like a really severe kind of makeup special effects on the uh, the faces of the people who die. It's like distorted and messed up. Whereas in the Japanese Ringu, what you see is just a face of absolute sheer horror, like a corpse whose face is frozen in terror. And there's no makeup, no special effects. It is equally effective. Like, they really didn't need to turn the dial up the way they did for it to be scary. And that's, I mean, I feel like even as a teenager, that was one thing that kind of always threw me off is I'm like, okay, so you're telling me she died of her heart just stopping, but yet her body looks like it's been in water. <laughs> yeah. Because I was watching CSI at the time. I know what a, what a, what a bloated body looks like after it's been in the water for 12 hours. That was always the one weird little nothing that we need to spend 20 minutes on, but I always just went, if you just said in the kitchen that her heart stopped, but then her Then body, how come she looked like that? How come she looks like that? That was just always something that bothered me. But All then, right. anyways, they We just had to talk over. about that, Jeff, because, man, So then really it moves good. into her kind of trying to play like the, I'm the cool auntie, I'm going to smoke a cigarette with y'all, and, you know, what do you know? Because teenagers know. Teenagers will say something. And that's when they say it was because she watched the tape. Yeah. And not only that, but other kids watched it with her mm -hmm. and her secret boyfriend josh is also dead from a suspected suicide he fell from a great height and maybe that's why they're not connecting them because even though they died at exactly the same time because he fell off of a high rise or whatever maybe you didn't see like right. oh he also looks like a bloated waterlogged corpse and you find out the other two teenagers died in a car accident yes because they were in the car together so this is what starts everything going is that one, she knew she was going to die. Two, three others have died at the same time. And you find out next, the next scene takes place with her at her work. She's doing her thing. Mm -hmm. She's cooking up a story. 
And as she's getting these her calls, boss says you're fired, and, and she like, says no, no I'm, I'm not. not. <laughs> Which I don't know. If the and it works. She's not fired because he, she's cooking up too good of a story. Just don't tell him what it is that it's like a, a, a magical videotape that causes yeah. people to die. Because then you are like double fired, super fired. And, but it works. She's but not yeah, fired. So then she finds out that they all died. At the exact same time. 10 o'clock. She sees it in the archives. Right. So she needs to figure out what's the deal with this tape. She knows from the from the peers at the funeral, from Adam Brody of OC fame, that they went to the... Oh, I'm going to forget went what it's out, They basically went camping. They went to this cabin. They went to a cabin, but I'm trying to remember what it's called. I can't believe it. Shelter Mountain Inn. I love I how you're looking at me like I know. Well, uh, who else am I going to look to? It's uh, just the two of us. That's true. Unless, Samara, is that you? Just us. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so then next thing we know... I guess it's time to go to the inn. I guess it's time to go to Shelter Mountain Inn and figure out right. what happened with this videotape because that's where they watched it. Um, so she rents the exact same cabin number, finds this unmarked video cassette in this library. Let me ask you this. Did you ever go to a hotel where there was a like video library where you could rent a video or like borrow one from the kind of communal... Shelf of VHS tapes? No, but I used to rent videos at Albertsons. Well, that's not what I'm asking. I'm just saying, like, is no, that's as close of something weird, I rental. Have, I, have I didn't stayed. know that was a thing. I did, because I have, actually, on, like, a road trip with my family, we did, at some point, stay at some rural country uh, motel, and they had that little, like, room where you could go in and borrow a video. So... I feel like that would have been for me. Like I said, Albertsons was as creepy as it got for me. But the grocery store. <laughs> why are you renting videos at Albertsons? Because they were a dollar. You're asking yourself. Because <laughs> I was in the car with my mom. I didn't have a choice. But no. But like, yeah, this was a completely foreign thing to me that you could rent movies at hotels. So yeah, she finds this this unmarked videotape and just assumes that that is the one because of well, course she assumes she, correctly. She, she does. Because of course. She's going to get really lucky with a lot of clues right. as she, she goes about solving this mystery. And you know what? We write it all off as we got to get to the next spot in the mystery. So yeah, exactly. she's going to find a lot of very conveniently placed clues. And keep in mind, y'all, that a lot of this stuff when we are talking about it, I'm not going to lie, I'm definitely putting myself in 13-year-old Delabra's shoes. Because as an adult rewatching this, there were a lot of things that I was like, okay, would I have gotten into this movie and loved it the way I did had it come out now? No. But as a kid, it all made sense. Well, let me say this. When it comes to scary movies in general, it's all about that first viewing. And I will forgive a lot. I will like, I'll let a lot of slack for uh, filmmakers and writers who are, who will have contrivances in their plot and a lot of convenient discoveries mm -hmm. if it gets us to a really scary payoff. And in this movie, it pretty much always gets us to a really scary payoff because this thing is just like chock full of jump scares and spooky and imagery. Speaking and of payoff, to me, to me, the scariest part in this entire movie is what's actually on the tape. The tape's pretty scary. This tape is very scary. The tape, so she she goes in, she turns on the the turns on the TV, puts in the tape, and this boom. entire screen become or the entire world becomes red when she goes into this room because of that red that magic red tree. tree. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even get to talk about how this movie is green as green can be. I will complain about that. I 
hate the coloring of this the movie. The coloring of this movie I is really extreme. I get that it's fucking Seattle. I get it. But <laughs> Seattle's like, not like but that's what I'm saying. through a green filter, though. It's not. As a Texan who's never been to the Pacific Coast. Pacific Coast? Pacific Northwest. Pacific Northwest. I find it very hard to believe that that is literally the color scheme of Seattle. Like, fuck that. Fuck It's off. not. It's for the it's purposes not. of this movie. But it's annoying. But yeah, but the one time... It's a mood. It's a mood. It's a mood. It's a hashtag <laughs> mood. But then all of a sudden you get this red because she's watching this movie. And it's just a series of these weird little, you know, the caterpillar, the, the, the centipede coming out, the mm -hmm. lady brushing her hair. A ladder falling over. The nail, the, the, the finger going Ooh, through the nail. Yes, a nail going through a finger and pushing the fingernail off. Which, the maggots, but then they turn into people. Um, you just see all these disturbing images. Bloody water. Horses dying on Horses, the beach. Horses, yeah. And so then finally the video's over and she gets the phone call. The phone rings and she answers. And she says, you're done. This is added for the American version. In the Japanese film, there's nobody on the other end. The phone rings and there's kind of some noise and static, but there's not a voice that tells you seven days. So again, we're turning the dial up on spooky horror, almost cliche. It's a cliche Do now. Do you think that they did it because you know, we're still in a very post-Scream world, or do you think that the writers just thought American audiences would be too stupid to realize that after you watch this movie, you will die? Do you think that they actually needed to spell it out? I think there is a certain amount of spelling out, and especially at the end, they really spell out for us the conclusion, the kind right. of twist at the end. Because I, I almost feel like there were certain aspects of the movie where like they just didn't think people were intelligent enough to pick up on that. Again, this is, this is a filmmaking duo that not together, but separately would go on to make Pirates right. of the Caribbean and, you know, a bunch of big, and Transformers, you and, know, and to me this was mass one of, appeal Hollywood blockbusters. And to me this is one of the very first complex horror movies of the 21st century that we see. You know, because again, we're reeling off of slasher films, which are very like, crazy dude, crazy person killing a bunch of teenagers, but this was the first one that put in a little more effort, so I feel like they probably were like, eh. What year was The Sixth Sense? Uh, 1999. Oh, 99. And let me be real, real quick, give me one minute. I didn't fucking see that shit coming a mile away. <laughs> okay? The first time I watched that movie, did not see it coming. I like, think the ring borrows from The Sixth Sense because visually The Sixth Sense is, is really like desaturated color-wise. Mm -hmm. It's not green like The Ring is. But it also, I think the whole character of Aiden is like, uh, yeah. uh, they, they saw the whole like... This is a child who's nine or ten years old who behaves as if he's a 40-year-old man. He, like, sets out the clothes, clothes for his mom and calls her Rachel, doesn't call her mom, and, like, ties his little tie in the mirror. I mean, it's all it's laughable, actually, the way it, it they is. wrote this character. It is, and it's like, I, you, didn't, you wouldn't have picked it up in 2002, but, like, now looking at it, there was, you know, creepy kid tropes were a thing. I would even say that the kids in Science were a little creepy. You yeah. Know, it, it just was a thing. But anyways... So she watches this film, she gets the phone call, and now we begin the like the digging into what the hell is going on. And then we meet yet another character. Oh, we also we forgot. She uh, finds in Katie's room that receipt for uh, undeveloped photos. Mm -hmm. And she goes and develops the film, which is a thing you had to do in 2002. And finds that all their faces are distorted mm -hmm. after they watch the video. Right. Because the next thing that happens is she discovers that her face is distorted. She goes to this guy, Noah, who's not played by Luke Wilson, but some guy who looks a lot like him. And she says, take my picture. <laughs> 
She, he looks actually like Luke Wilson playing Billy Loomis in Scream 2. Ever since you brought that up, I can't unsee it. It looks He looks just he like does, Luke like, Wilson as Skeet so Ulrich as oddly, Billy Loomis in the super meta thing. It's so oddly specific that like when you said that while we were watching it, I'm like, what the fuck? Oh my god, you asshole. Now I can't see it. But anyways, we're introduced to Noah. He is a skeptic. He's not going to believe this. He, sus- he, he subscribes to Video Geek Magazine, by the way. That's right. a little detail. Of He's this. a super geek because they make sure that we really understand. He's a filmmaker and a photographer, it seems like. That's kind of his job. Right. Which, them being a, her being a journalist, they definitely have worked together. Yeah. He's probably a photojournalist or video journalist. So what does she do? Because she's such a, you know, that person. He coaxes her into watching the tape. So he now watches it. I thought she kind of coaches him into watching it. So she's, you know, they're going into it and he's like, well, let me watch it. And she's like, I don't think it's a good idea. And he's like, well, it's just a tape. Right, right. Because she believes it at this point. She believes it at this point. She knows she's going to die. She accepts it immediately. Right. And the face warping is weird. So we basically go into a series of scenes where she's investigating and she's really, um, she makes a copy of the movie. Mm -hmm. She goes to another center where she's actually able, because Noah brings up that there is like some sort of like there's a frame that's missing that it goes from one frame to another and the thing at this point that I'd like to notice I'd like to point out that at this point when she is doing things with the tape like when the lady in the pigtails is showing her how to use this stuff she makes a point to say hey I'd rather watch this by myself so it's like now she's being more conscious of making sure nobody else is around when she's watching this which is a big sign of I really do believe this but in case I'm wrong or even if I'm right I should be the only person that watches this. Because, like, what's going to happen if I keep watching it over and over again? I've already got seven days. Right, she doesn't watch it when Noah watches it at his house, which right. is amazing, by the way. He's got, like, a sick loft Dude, that he must pay his... a fortune for. Yeah, he had. Well, it was 2002. In Seattle. I mean, I don't know what the stuff was like in Seattle. I mean, but then again, you know, freelance. But anyways... Yeah. He had a gigantic loft. It There's was, a cool scene when she goes outside while she's watching it and she's looking at all the... Different uh, TVs. Yeah, I and all that. the through people's windows. It's almost like a rear window reference. Yes. That she's looking voyeuristically into all these people's homes. It's like a goddamn penthouse. But anyways, <laughs> I mean, at this point, like I said, she's, she's investigating. She's, you know, going through the film. She goes to this, this area, is able to pull that separate frame, which pulls out to be a lighthouse. And then again, we have yet another scene where... Right, it's because the tracking of the tape, there's more beyond the frame than we can see. So she changes the tracking. Mm -hmm. This is all like weird VHS technology that's kind of like... Which kind of like if this movie had been done even five years later with a DVD, it wouldn't have really had... They just would have had a different version of like um, the hidden portion of the file or something. The encoded or encrypted. So yeah, she finds out, they find out this lighthouse. She goes to the library. She rents a book called uh, America's Lighthouses. America's Lighthouses. Finds out where the lighthouse is. Well, she sees a picture of the same light. It's like the exact same angle. Because remember, she prints it. I know, and it matches so perfectly with the screenshot from the video. It's like the same angle, the same everything. It's great. We need to see that because, again, they're spelling this out for us as an audience. They're really spelling it out. Um, And so a couple of things have happened that definitely give uh, almost foreshadowing. You have the scene where she pauses before the lighthouse happens and the fly in the video starts to move even when it's paused and she's actually able to pull it out. Love that. She has a nosebleed. You also notice that when she is walking down this alley, she walks underneath this giant ladder that looks exactly like the one in the film. There's these little things that are happening throughout. Cool little supernatural creepy touches. I actually like all of this stuff. I love it because it's definitely one of those things where it's like, 
oh, no, you can't escape this. I'm going to give you a hint that it's going to be to the average eye. Oh, that's just a ladder. Oh, that's just a fly. Hey, you've got a nosebleed. And you wonder what's real. You know, is reality being distorted? Or are we? do we have an unreliable narrator? Like, is she kind of going into a paranoid trend? It, it at least makes you uh, question those things. I won't lie. I didn't see it like that. I just saw it as very everyday things. I don't see it that way either, but... But it's an interesting way to see it, but, like, even both viewings i just saw it as like we know what it is she knows what it is but like that one guy you know the the painter he's like hey you know don't go underneath that ladder it's bad luck and it's like he's talking about bad luck as in a ladder but like we take it as like yeah bitch because you're gonna fucking die like right so that's what it's i like, like how later the uh clerk tells noah you're gonna, you're gonna die gonna, you're gonna die you're gonna die so and we think oh she's a psychic so uh, convenience like, store clerk you could definitely see it from two perspectives but i almost want to say no I like it being just these are these subtle hints that like you're getting closer to your death. I think subtle is generous. It's not subtle at all. Not at all. <laughs> it's like really, really heavy handed and obvious. Yeah. But again, I will, I feel like we will say this constantly. I feel like sometimes horror movie writers will write things very on the nose because they just don't think we're smart enough to pick up on it. Well, this plot is relatively convoluted because we're about to get into some pretty deep backstory right. of where this videotape came from why there is like a curse on it. And that's something that is a little bit problematic with the American version is like, is it cursed? Is it magic? Is it evil? In Japan, the idea of a curse and a charm, which is like the anti-curse, is I think much better established in just Japanese and Eastern folklore and well, people's exactly. stories. And immediately the characters accept, oh, this is a cursed videotape. We have to find the charm. And our characters in the American version are doing the same thing, but we as an audience don't really have the same framework of how do you cure the curse or how do you charm That's the curse. That's just not in American folklore. Like, no, it's not part of our culture. When you think about American folklore, we have things like Paul Bunyan and giant oxes and really tall dudes. Like, we don't have, like, I would feel like traditional American culture, you know, very white American culture is not very charmed and curse heavy. It's not until you go into Native Americans with like Wendigo, you go next door in Louisiana, you deal with voodoo. That's where you start to see things like that. But like you said, when it comes time talking about curses and charms, most of us are going to go. Well, here we see it from coming from Japanese, from a Japanese source. Right. So like you said, this is where things get convoluted. So... So we what end we up learned, going to the island. Well, first, we, there's a really important backstory before that, which is that in 1978, on an island called Moesco Island, which is where the lighthouse is, she mm -hmm. finds us at the library on like a super old-fashioned internet, um, all these horses on this horse farm die, which it belongs to Anna Morgan, and we see a photo of Anna Morgan with her horse club, and, and she's obviously a woman from the videotape. She and was obviously photoshopped in that photo. It's a really bad photo. Can I say that I, I hated that photo even in 2002? I was like, that yeah, is... Yeah, it was so obvious. Everyone's wearing white. She's wearing black. Also, okay, sorry. I took costume history. The, the, her outfit is just so outdated. Like, we were talking about that. Like, what she's wearing. She looks like she's from um, 1878. 1878. Not 1978, 19. which is when it's supposed to be. Like, it looks way more... And the photos are, like, really black and white. Like, right, sepia like, tone. I'm not, I'm not trying to say say like oh you know she has to have the fair faucet curls and he has to be rocking a polyester <laughs> because you know again what you have to think about is like what the fashion is in main city mainland cities they're not going to have on islands but god damn that was so off i'm like she is old timing that's what i'm saying she's like a hundred years off so i don't know anyways 
Anyway, she kills herself because the horses are dying and she has mental problems and hallucinations and stuff. Uh, in, in Ringu, she throws herself into a volcano. We don't really have volcanoes in uh, damn, the Pacific Northwest, except in the movie Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones, where there is a volcano in Seattle. But we're crossing genres now. Um, she just throws herself off of a cliff in the American version. And so I guess, you know, now it's time to go and check out that island. But not until, not until a really cool sequence, which is a dream that Rachel has of her kind of like being um, who we will find out is Samara in the mental institution. And then a phone call with her sister where she coughs up this electrode with hair attached to it. So we're seeing wet hair and an electrode, all these images that we don't yet understand because we don't have context for them. And right after that, she wakes up from this dream to find maybe the most devastating moment in the movie. She opens the door to the TV room in her house and her son, Aiden, has just finished watching the video. Yep. Damn. Yep. This is when she finally calls Noah and says, he watched it. And Noah goes, who? And she says, our son. <laughs> Record scratch. That's their son. We, for some reason, didn't know this before. They withheld that from us. I, I don't understand. totally under fuck buddies. Like, there was no... Because didn't you say in the Ringu, it's very it's clear that they were married and this is her ex-husband? Yes. Yeah. Because I want to... Again, like, big difference between Japanese culture and Western Right. But I feel culture. like they, they... This would be... I feel like I'm throwing nothing but negative stuff at it, but I feel like they didn't... There's a lot to poke holes in here. Well, I mean, there is. And I mean, I'm trying not to poke holes at like very subtle things because that's not fun. But I remember watching this again as a kid going, well, that came out of nowhere. Because at the very beginning, which is a scene that they mirrored perfectly in the Ringu, the little boy, which by the way, I understand that kids do with public transit, tra transit around the world, they will go on buses by themselves, they will mm -hmm. go on trains by themselves. I, I completely, as a dumb American, international people, I understand that that is what y'all do. However, we do not do that in the United States. And I always thought that scene was super weird that he is walking by himself in the pouring rain, yeah. and he walks, he sees Noah, Noah sees them, they look at each other, and then they just go their separate ways. Yeah. Um, weird scene. I don't right. really Which understand to me, the story almost, being told there. I don't understand why they just didn't let them be married. Because then that would have made a bit more... Like, I don't know. I don't know. I just... I felt like... And the next things I'm going to bring up later, why this annoys me. So you find out that Noah and... What is her name in this movie? Rachel. Rachel have banged. He <laughs> a baby daddy. He... And didn't want to be a father, so he just... That fuckboy life. Fuckboy life, man. Uh, yep, that's that uh, Luke Wilson skeet. Oh, so <laughs> fuckboy life. So now we have... Because, you know, at this point, Noah seems kind of like, meh, whatever, film. Rachel has definitely started to believe in it. But now the clock is ticking because now little dude has watched it. Oh, and yeah. The stakes have just gone They've way gone up. through the roof, right? So now they have to go to this island. They have to figure out what's going she on. She goes to the island while he goes to the archives right. at the hospital, which is on the mainland. Right. So they are both doing their own investigating. And the thing that... The scene that I love, because he's, you know, he has to do investigating stuff. He breaks in and, and pulls the files and stuff like that. But what she does is she ends up talking to one of the doctors who was there when basically everything happened. And the thing that she said that I, that has always stuck with me 
is it's the first time where she says, you know, we find out there's a daughter. We find out that, you know, where did this daughter come from? And the doctor's like, she was trying, she was trying to have a child. They had, they weren't successful, but then one winter they left, they came back, they had her. So we really don't know where Samara came from. They adopted her. And they that, adopted her, but we yeah. don't know like any. I think else in the really. sequels they'll kind of like fill in that backstory a little bit. But basically, they adopted this. Basically, girl. yeah, they adopted her. You know, we don't know who her parents are, but we know that the moment she gets into the picture, things start to go kind of screwy. Horses are dying. You know, uh, Anna Morgan is complaining about seeing things. And so she's going into this explanation. There's lots of, you know, storyline being thrown Samara's at Samara's not right. She's, she's not right. She's in the mental hospital. And finally, you know, at the end, the doctor basically says, everything got a lot better when this girl left. So we're definitely establishing the evil child trope. Yeah, this bitch is evil AF. Just evil. Just evil, evil, evil. So then on the flip side of it, Noah is watching the, um, he finds the OG, the files, and the tape of Samara's... Um, I'm sorry, he doesn't find the tape of Samara because it's already been checked out because by Mr. Mr. Morgan. Morgan played brilliantly by Brian Cox. Brian Cox! Who, I love him! I just... I will say this over and over again. I'm going to bring back Drew Barrymore. If you can be as impactful as Drew Barrymore and Brian Cox with having less than like 10 minutes of film time, what? Love it. Because he's in the movie no more than 10 minutes, right? You're probably right. I would say 10 minutes of his whole, of his entire thing. He has a phenomenal death, though. Phenomenal death, phenomenal monologue, everything. Because so we're adding to the death count with, with Mr. Morgan's death. Which is And we're added. jumping way ahead because we just got to get through this. I'm sorry. We do, yeah. yeah. No, we're, we're, we're going through this. <laughs> so really, really quick, we, you know, uh, she goes and interviews Mr. Morgan and he's like, you're here for the horses. It's very- I very don't have a daughter! Because he always sounds Scottish even when he's playing American. Sorry, he's Brian, you're great, but- You're great, but it, it's okay. I, you'll always be Mr. Moon from Fraser to me. And Death I love you so much and uh, a long kiss goodnight. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. So yeah, we're going through it, we're going through it. And it seems like once she brings up the daughter, that is when things kind of set him off. Yeah. So flash forward to later on that night, um, she, she finds, finds this tape, tape, right? She watches it in his living room. <laughs> she just like sits in front of the TV. Because fuck privacy, right? Oh, she, well, she's a sleazy kind of tabloid journalist. She she's is. snooping around. I feel like she's she not, doesn't mind how many I horses like she kills. She's not working at like the Wall Street Journal of Seattle. She's definitely working at like the New York Post version. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Like, so she's willing to dig through some trash to get some tea. Oh, yeah. But you find out a couple of things. And the thing that. I loved, and I'm completely okay with not knowing, are the, uh, the x-rays. Oh, I can actually fill you in on this because no, no, I did no, a little more I digging. Wanna, I just want to know. I don't need to know how it's done. I just love that you never really found out. So those things that looked like x-rays mm -hmm. in the file of Samara. Samara Morgan, by the way, is the evil child, in case that's not abundantly clear. Evil. Um, fake Luke Wilson pulls out these like x-ray looking things of like a rocking horse or something. Something with like a nail in it. So, oh man, I wish I'd written down the word that they that is on the label of the file, but it's basically images that are drawn uh, psychically. Like she uses her mind to draw those images. She doesn't draw them. And in the video that we watch later of her being they ask, interviewed. They're like, how did you do this? She says they just are. I right. think I see it and then they just are. And there's a word 
Sorry, guys. I can't remember what it is. Google it and tell us. That it's like electro-psychograph, like something weird like that, where the, it, she's able to draw with her mind. Mm -hmm. So that's why they look so weird, like weird x-ray things, right. is because she draws those images psychically. And yeah, so they're having this interview, and they're asking her, like, you know, why do you want to, like, you know, how did you get the, make these drawings? And she's like, they just are. You know, what did you do with the horses? You know, and you find out a lot of things. You find out one that Mr. Morgan is not crazy about Samara. They do not have a relationship. <laughs> he kind of is very like, I did not have a child. But we also realize Well, that he knows that she's evil. He knows that she's evil. And then we also find out that Samara basically drove her mother to go crazy. You know? And commit suicide. And commit suicide. In the so one very interesting a uh, huge departure from the origin from Ringu, and I'm not sure exactly how it goes in the novel. But in Ringu, we go into like a deep flashback um, that is being perceived by psychic powers. Like we just accept in that movie that yeah, psychic stuff totally exists, and people can perceive things. In the American version, that's quite subtle, where like Rachel will have a flash vision or a dream of the past. But in Japan, it's like, oh, yeah, you touch somebody in a certain way and you're going to have a full on psychic vision of what happened in the past. And we see that not only Samara or Sadako, as her name is in Japan, but her mother were both really gifted psychics. They had ESP and they were being her, the mother was being tested at this conference for ESP researchers and the daughter got upset and like murdered someone with her mind. So it's like, boom, everybody knows this child is evil because she just straight up murdered somebody with her mind. Here, we're just left to, um, you know, surmise that from the fact that the girl's just not right. I don't have a daughter. Like, which that's leads into, as Naomi watches, characters watching this, all of a sudden, Brian Cox, which I think is a beautiful jump scare. It is a good jump scare. You just see him just staring at her and as the lighthouse light is going around so it gets right, light so and see, then dark right really Which, good device really great and then all of a sudden he hits her and you're thinking like i mean i thought in my mind oh my god he killed samara as she's yelling that and she's running after him like yelling out all this stuff like you did this you did this mind you he is holding all the electronics he's got and like 16 power strips wrapped like around, around his neck and he turns around and says he grabs wife. the tv that she was just watching and carries right, it upstairs and he's, just, and he's just going upstairs and she's yelling at him and you know and, and finally he just he, he, you know she's like you can he's like my wife was not supposed to have a child he goes into this bathroom you see that it's flooded with water that's when he sounds really scottish when oh, he yeah. says that my then, wife was not supposed to have a child turns on and, you know and then he starts you have to really start paying attention to what he's saying he's just like oh my god the things that she would draw the things that she did you know and you know he just it's just throwing all of this out and then Clicks on the button and boom, Daddy Morgan is gone. He, also, he gets into a bathtub. Gets something. in a bathtub and electrocutes himself, which is like super crazy. Suit like every, you know, of course, everything. He's flung back. There's blood everywhere. She runs away, runs into Noah, and yeah, he just happens to show up at the exact moment that Mr. Morgan electrocutes because himself. Because it needed to happen, damn it. And we need and t clock is ticking. We got one day left, so we got to right. solve this motherfucking mystery. So then, where do we go? We got to go back to Shelter Mountain Inn. Well, actually, first we go to the barn where Samara had a sick loft that you could totally Airbnb. Sick loft as a 30-year-old. Scary when you're eight. <laughs> and that's when you realize, oh, the horses kept her up at night. If I found that on Airbnb, I would so book a night at Samara's loft in the barn. You are so white. 
That's white people shit. I'm sorry. The people go to Lizzie Borden's house to, for bed and breakfast. I don't understand. Mm. Why would you stay in the same room? What's on the menu? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just know that like people do that. People will go and stay at that creepy New Waverly sanatorium just because. Yeah, I'll do that shit. So anyway, we go to Samara's little loft because they kick her out of the house because they know she's evil. She electrograph psychics some shit on the wall that's a big tree and Leads Naomi Watts recognizes it and says that's the tree at the Shelter Mountain Inn where I watched the video, the one that magically turned everything red. And we are now we going go back, back and they drop some marbles and it points them in the direction of the well so they... Uh, so an opinion as everything is on podcast this is for me when things go from a minute to what really the fuck? <laughs> not even what the fuck it's really oh yeah so go on keep i just i just yeah just well we just have to get there we gotta get to the climax absolutely so she they the marbles like point them in the direction of the well they they take an axe and break through the floorboards of the cabin the number 12 are somehow magically unscrewing themselves you know, they find this well, and then all of a sudden, the TV, the way things happen, the TV, you know, it, it hits Rachel. It falls and knocks her into the well and she falls because in the well. of evil magic. Of course. And but she's okay. She falls in the well, but like, no biggie. No biggie. Everything's fine. Just like when Samara fell in the well years ago, which we see in kind of a psychic flashback. Well, first of all, her mother definitely suffocates her. Yes. Suffocates her, not just enough to, you know. She doesn't do it nearly long enough. She wraps a trap, even though she's dressed in Victorian garb, she has like a hefty bag that she wraps around her daughter's face and then pushes her into the well after about 10 seconds of suffocation. I'm gonna sit here and act like I didn't think about it, but like, okay, at this point, 78, I'm like, did they have hefty bags in the 70s? Oh, yeah, there were trash bags. But like a hefty bag like that? What do you think they threw their trash out in? Hefty, hefty, hefty bags. I mean, I don't know about the brand. Anyway. So we find out she kills her daughter, suffocates her, pushes her in a well, closes it. And then we find out, oh, you know, it took her seven days to die. Hence the seven days. The last thing she saw was the ring and the light around the well because her mom closes the well. And, you know, you almost feel a little boohoo sad for her because it's like, man, this is a terrible way to go out as a child. Like, you were severely abused. At, to what to our knowledge severely abused by your mother your father hates you and thinks you're the devil and then they just kill you and throw you under a well but now that rachel has found her body and they can excavate her and give her a proper burial maybe that will be the charm that releases the curse then, and everyone just assumes that that's the case because why would about, that not be the case no because i'm sorry but then after this what fucking happened my favorite part of the movie is so bad oh it's my god really really bad they they you know they're sitting there having a conversation after they get her out of the well and you know now he wants to like be there for the kid which first of all first of all that's like nine nine years of backed up child support okay like, we don't know that he wasn't paying child support look at his loft he got money all right, I'm just throwing that out there. But then, like, you know, they go and pick up Aiden, and they're holding hands in the car. And he's uh-huh. like, and it's just... It's, we're a family again. We're a family, which, oh, I fucking hate this part. I hate it. It is so, like, this, to me, this is where the producers meddled. If the producer, we gotta play a game. Where do the producers medal? They meddled in this scene. They fucking meddled, like, that that 15-minute gap. Like, to me, they're just like, no, let's fluff it up. Let's do Hollywood. Bullshit. Because it's so... 
out of place to me. It's... I'll tell you this. Here's what it serves to do. I see why. I agree with you. It's really, really heavy-handed. It's how... too on the nose. But it serves a valuable purpose. It's a fake out. Because the movie feels like it's over. It's been like an hour 40 and you're like, okay, happy ending. They solved the mystery. They found Samara's body. Everything is good again. It looks like they're going to reconcile and they're going to be a family. But it's, we get one. We get a really, really, get, really great and, surprise. And they, they, they made it better because then the next scene, you know, the next day, you know, they they, they scoop up. They scoop up Aiden. And they put him to bed to get like he picks him up and they give him a kiss and and everything's gonna be better. And she's like, I helped her. I did this. And Aiden, I set her free. I set her free. Said. And Jay, and Aiden jumps up and goes, "You helped her. Why did you do that?" Why did you help her? I remember she being never sleeps. in the theater and everybody in the theater went, no. Oh! <laughs> what? Because at this point in 2002, you didn't see shit like that. Like that was the Hollywood 90s endings that we are known to believe. Because fucking, let's be honest, Scream gave us a Hollywood ending. Scream 2 gave us a Hollywood ending. This is a very Hollywood ending. His nose starts to bleed and she knows she, her seven days are up. Whose nose starts to bleed? Aiden's. Oh, when he that. says she never sleeps, his nose starts oh, to bleed. Oh, like hers did when, like she, hers when did. she found the fly. On exactly. The video. But guess whose day is up? Fucking Noah. Bye, Noah. So this is a great scene. That really, scene really, is I screamed out loud in the theater. Fantastic, when this because this is the first time and only time we actually see what happens when your time is up. Yep. And he's sitting there, and the TV turns on. We all, we all familiar, and he turns it off. It turns back up, and then all of a sudden, boom, you see the well. And then you see her climb out, and you're like, okay. This is really cool how she climbs out, too, because they filmed it backwards. So her hair, like, comes out first. Yes. Which you pointed that out to me, and I watched it again, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. They obviously like, filmed so her cool. going in and then played it backwards so her hair could creep out first. Really awesome. It's great. And so you're like, oh, my God. You know, like, they're playing, the, the movie's playing. She's coming out. But not only that, bitch comes out of the TV. That's where I screamed because I was like, there's no way she can find, there's no way. Oh my God, here she comes! Comes out of the TV, breaks all dimensions, comes out of the TV. And I mean, that part didn't get me. Uh, the part that got me was when she stands up and she does that quick jump and he flings back. Yeah. That kills me. But the thing I did notice, but I also appreciate now, is how she looks like the TV, where it's like, it's fizzy. It's, that is pretty cool, how when she comes out, she still is in this black and white kind of like... Right, where it's like, you can definitely see that she's she's crossing over different planes of existence, but very she's cool still effect. in her. I think it was great. Like, like I said, I my complaint is definitely where I thought they overdid the deaths and the makeup, but like, this was the one time where I went, no, that's totally cool. And then you see your face, you see him, blackout. This is a huge difference between uh, the Japanese and American versions, and a Which lot of people have a problem watch. with it. Yeah. Is that you don't see her face ever in the Japanese one, you just see like a close up of her eye. And in the American one, she looks up and you see her distorted face with all that kind of makeup and effects on it. And a lot of people really hate that, myself included. I don't hate it, but I think like we didn't need to see that. Don't show me. We didn't need to see it, but then again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Sometimes you have to spell things out. Like, you know. You don't need to spell out what her face looks like. Yeah, but. Like, unless you decided to like, I guess you had to because it explains why the other faces looked so grotesque. But they what, didn't need to look that grotesque. I'm telling no, you. No, they didn't. It was no more it, it or less was, scary to do that. It was than, a thing that it was like somebody decided to do it and they just had to commit to it. And it was like you could have gotten rid of it and it would have been just the same. But anyways, she Rachel comes in, 
sees the TV, sees the puddle of water. It takes a very long time to investigate this whole scene before she finally turns around his pretty cool mid-century modern uh, lounge chair. You fucking nerd. It's a cool chair. It's a very cool chair. Just how you go, his mid-century really cool chair. She screams. We still don't see his face. Good scream. It's kind of like, yeah, very it's, a, good, it's a good scream. Because it's like, you only get, she only gives you really two good ones. And it's when Aiden watches the tape and then, yes. and then when he, she turns the swivel chair. And so at this point, she comes back to the house. This is the first time we actually see her being mad at Aiden, tells him to go to his room now. And he just like runs off and she's crying and she's tearing up the video, doing this very dramatic thing. What did I do? What did I do that he didn't? And, and then, that's a line from the Japanese version too. What do we notice? She made a copy. This is something I wrote down. Um, I think this is where there was definitely meddling after like a preliminary screening because she picks up the other, the copy of the VHS that has the word copy written on it. And she has the realization, the, the line, I made a copy is dubbed over it's ADR. Like she her lips don't move. It's literally voiceover saying I made a copy because they thought. I think they were like, people aren't going to put it together unless we have the line, I made a copy. I hate to sound like a dick, but then again, Donald Trump is president. We Americans are a lot stupider than we think. And part of me thinks maybe they did do this with a test audience without that and they didn't pick up on it. I think so. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm I saying. Just said, yeah. I just, it's like, but it's just one of those things where you get so annoyed, but then I'm like, well, shit. If I, she it didn't really annoy me. It's just I just noticed it. I clocked it. Like that was... Not a line in the original. I script. want to say a light annoyance, where it's just like, I duh, duh. You made you did a whole fucking scene with you making a copy. I would have, you know. So then Aiden makes a copy, and he says, "What's going to happen to the person we show it to?" And and that's the, I think the last line of the film. Yeah, I think she just kind of looks and really doesn't answer, and then that's it. Cool little like uh, jump at the end when we speed through in fast motion the video, and mm -hmm. it kind of implies like you, the viewer, are the one that we showed it to, like you and me watching this movie. Oh, we just saw it. That's kind of spooky, and but also super cheesy. <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, that's the ring. That's the ring. Um. Yeah. The biggest differences between the Japanese and American versions is like the Japanese version I found to be very restrained and very, uh, it, it just relied on the, the sense of dread and the psychological um, aspects of knowing that there's a mystery that needs to be solved, there's a curse that needs to be charmed, and it leaned really heavy into the ESP thing because I, I guess audiences were willing to accept that. The American version feels like the bloated remake with but, tons of extra scares like most of these American, great scares American like horror, horror, bleh, American horror culture for you we are a very violent culture we like that violence and that gore true you know that's what it, it is there's not violence and gore in this movie though I mean there's, there's not, no gore whatsoever but that's what I'm saying I'm just saying in general we are going to always chalk it up if it was at a 5 we're taking it to a 12 that's just what we do, you know? So I'm very curious. I personally did not see the remake. I mean, not the remake. I did not see the original, but I did watch the comparisons to certain scenes and it's way more tame. But like I said, Japanese horror focuses on more of the psychological and that dread. Yes. You know your time, you know this is the time frame. You have until this time to fix this. Either it's going to get fixed or it's not, or you'll find out in the time for you, but somebody else still has to go. So all in all, this movie only had three deaths. Brian Cox 
Katie. And Noah. Noah. On screen. Like, the only on screen. I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about on screen. Wow. You might be right. There's only three. Yeah, I think you're right. So that's why... So... Now it's my turn to ask. What do you, how many, how many ghost faces do you give it out of five? Oh, we're using ghost faces for like everything? Yes. Um, on a, for like quality? I would say overall. I would say, okay, let's be fair. Um, 12 year old koozie. How many ghost faces? Um, out of five, five being the highest. Quality, like a four. Okay. 30 year old koozie. Like a two. Okay. But, there, there's like, how good is this movie? I'll give it maybe a two. It does a lot of things really well, but there's a lot about it that I'm like, oh come on. Um, the Japanese one, I'll give it a four for sure. That's right. just like a good, a good film. As far as scare factor goes, like how scary is this movie on a scale of one to five uh, Again, like centipedes? I'm gonna give this one like a like a five, maybe a four. Okay, is this, I think this movie is quite scary. Is this twelve year old or thirty? Year twelve old? year old, it's a five. Oh my god! When I was twelve and I saw this, this was like Fair. five out of five. It scared the shit out of me. It's actually the last movie I think I've seen as a human being that really, really, really scared the shit out of me. Okay. And even today, watching it, you know, I'm like, you know what? Compared to the other stuff out there, this is maybe a three point five on the scare as far as scares go. Like, it, it's pretty scary. What about you? Um. Baby me, 13-year-old me. Quality-wise, how many um, uh, Adam Brodies do you give it on a scale of 1 to 5? As a 13-year-old as a, as a me. Yeah. I would have said a 4. 4. That's what I said, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, 30, 31-year-old you. 1.5. Oh, wow. It's really bad. <laughs> I mean, the thing to me is... It, uh, I love... I, I do enjoy horror movies, but... And I know certain things, like certain jump scares after I've seen a movie a couple of times won't scare me anymore. Right. But the story and the concept of itself should still be able, if it can, hold the test of time. And like we said, the first time we watched this movie, it blew our minds. Watching it with you the other day, I was like, oh, I remember why this scared me the first time. But like as an adult, they were just, I was too busy paying attention to like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, yeah. that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that's why part of me thinks that had we been our age now, watching it 18 years ago, I don't think I would have liked it the first time at all. I might have because I will give a lot of leeway for something that doesn't necessarily make sense. Also, you're not really paying as close of attention to that the first time you see it. Right. Especially if you're scared. Because, okay, because time- every little plot hole or contrivance or thing, it paves the way for something pretty scary that's about to happen. Right. It's like so I think like if I'd watched it as at 31 for the first time, I'd be like, oh okay, that was that was cool. I you know, I feel like I got my five dollars worth seeing this movie. Yeah. But would I like go buy it on DVD or anything like that? Probably not. Which you totally did in middle school, didn't you? Or in high school. I think I found it in the dollar bin. I remember I had a girlfriend who had it on DVD and we we're like, oh, should we watch it? And I remembered how scared I was having seen it in the theater. And I was like, I don't know if I can. It's too scary. No, but yeah, I feel like this movie definitely, you know, it, it's a movie of its time. Oh, yeah. This is a movie that ushered in a huge wave oh, of yeah. new it, horror movies in in its subgenre. In just the J-horror or Eastern horror remake genre. Mm-hmm. and. We haven't decided on next week's thing, but I'm kind of enjoying how we moved from 1996. We, we made a big jump to 2002. I kind of want to keep going forward in American horror, like in our youth. I think maybe something like 
Can we do American Psycho? Yeah. But anyways, guys. We're going back to the 90s to go back to the 80s. Catch us next week on... I know what you watched last Sunday. Sunday. Bye, guys. See ya. Oh.